Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis 49. There are some notes to my left, your right, on the counter. This is part two, and I've changed the title and reworded the main point a little bit. (laughs) There will probably be a part three, and then probably the title and the main point will probably change again. Trying to get more precise and more simple and descriptive at the same time. Since last week we read the entire chapter, I'm not going to read the entire chapter this morning, but I'm going to read verses 1 down to verse 12. Genesis 49, 1 through 12 this morning. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what would befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff in between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Father, again we come to your word. And we ask that your spirit would do its work within us. We know that your word says again, Lord, that your word does grant faith, but also that your word works in those who believe. And we do believe and pray that you would work your word in us. We all need to, as David prayed, we all need to be confronted by your word and cleansed and humbled. May we be like that passage in Isaiah. May we be men and women that tremble at your word. Not at the preaching, but at the word. May we have hearts to receive what you would have to say to us this morning, Lord. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. I read not too long ago in a book that said, mobility equals survivability. Have you ever heard that saying? Mobility equals survivability. And it was in the context of primarily about health, 
that the older you get, you, you had better move. Because if you don't move and exercise, you're going to die. We want to age well. And so this book was saying one of the ways you can age well is to never stop moving. Whether that's hiking, riding a bike, walking, swimming. In a similar way, Genesis 49 comes in to a context where the nation Israel was supposed to have been going forward. In the historical context, they had received, or they were going to receive, the Pentateuch, of which Genesis would have been the first book of, and they were to go into the promised land, to, to take it by faith, even to overcome giants. They were in the land. And yet, out of the twelve spies that went into the land, ten of them decided it was too much for them, that they couldn't take the land by faith. The enemy was too large, too big, too much, and that the promises of God must be invalid or not true. It was only Joshua and Caleb that believed in that moment the promises of God. And in fact, most of Israel, most of those men and women That first generation that had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they too did not believe the promises of God. They too hesitated and rejected pressing forward into the promised land by which they had been delivered for by God into the promised land, but yet they did not press forward into it. And it's in that context that Genesis 49 is being read. It was given to Moses. Moses and the other elders of Israel then are are teaching and and reading from the book of Genesis. The way to, therefore, grow in Christ to receive all that he is for us to enjoy the fullness of God's promises is to keep pressing forward. What Israel failed to do after their redemption we in Christ must seek to do, and that is to keep pressing forward. Mobility equals survivability. As soon as we stop growing in Christ, that's a problem. And so we've asked in the past, and I'll ask again, are you closer to Christ now than when you first came to Christ or further away? Every year, are you and I making progress and knowing, serving, and becoming like Christ and having greater, appropriate, godly passion passion for Jesus, or are we backing off? If we're not pressing forward, then we're falling back. It's not about holding the ground. Not with Christ. We take ground. We press forward. We don't want to be stagnant. And so I believe that you can sum up this passage in its context, in its theology, with this sentence. Keep pressing forward because the Lord rules and the whole earth will be under the reign of Christ. Keep pressing forward because the Lord rules and the whole earth will be under the reign of Christ. And this morning, we will seek to see that fleshed out to a greater degree. And last week, we said that there are map keys, like you can have a map, and there can be in one of the corners, 
a map key that would tell you what the different symbols are so you can understand a map. If we were to look at this passage like a map on how to press forward, there are different keys. There are different keys for this map. And we've seen two of them already. The first one was this, the first key, the first map key. Keep pressing forward by trusting that God has the future in his perfect hands. God God holds the future of the whole universe and your future in his hands. And we can see that because in this passage, when he talks about all of these children of Jacob, he talks not just about their present and their past, but even about their future and their children's children future. And we know from the rest of Scripture, and even from other parts of the book of Genesis, that God is sovereign and he's in control of, of all things. So God has the future mapped out. We explored that last week. You might recall, though it was some time ago, to jump outside of Genesis just for a moment, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is another verse that's about that perfect sovereignty of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1, that God has a specific plan, though we may not always understand it or get it, and it can challenge us, God does have a plan. And Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, There is an appointed time for everything. In context, this is not that there's some kind of universal time whereby, okay, it's time now for you to be happy. Okay, now it's time for you to be sad. Okay, this is a time you do this. This is a time for that. More than that, in context, it's about the sovereign plan of God, that God has appointed specific times. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1 through 10 is all about. That's why verse 11 says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He's also set eternity in the heart, yet so that man would not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the, the end. There is this mystery of God, and even in Genesis 49, there are ministries that God does have a plan. For all of us and for everybody, and even for his appointed people back in the Old Testament. And those plans can also include difficult times. And in those difficult times are included human responsibility and human liability. We don't understand how that always works out. But we see this in Genesis 50 verse 20, which in the plan of God we're almost at. Genesis 50, verse 20 says, As for you, that is, the brothers of Joseph, as for you, you meant evil against me. Remember, they trafficked, that they sold Joseph into slavery. They engaged in human trafficking. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God had a plan. And he has a plan for you and I. We said Isaiah 46.10. The Lord knows the end from the beginning, saying, I will accomplish my good pleasure. So that's the first map key, is that Satan's not in charge, that the mystical universe is not in charge. There's no political leader that's in charge of the whole universe. There's one. The Lord God is in charge. Second, we said this. That when we look at this text, there's a second map key, and we see this in verses 2 through 7. 
keep pressing forward by getting right with God or face the consequences. You might remember that Judah started off not being a good person, but a bad person. And then after the whole encounter of Tamar in that story, toward the end of that story, he says what? First he says she should die, basically. And then at the end of that story, he says she is more righteous than I. Judah sees his evil and begins to take responsibility for his evil and to make steps getting right with God. And I think here in this passage, when Jacob is talking about Reuben and Simeon and Levi, there are specific things that they needed to repent over that apparently they had not. And so God, through Jacob, is bringing forth consequences that they would receive. We talked about that last week, that God is sovereign. He is. And even sovereign over evil, and even evil can be included in his story and and his plan. Though he's not responsible for evil, the humans are responsible for their own evil. And this text is given to who? Again, it's given to the nation Israel. Their heroes would have been who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their whether uncles or grandfather, all the different brothers of Joseph, all the children of Jacob would have been their heroes. And it starts off, this passage does, basically with God saying Reuben, Simeon, and Levi had a lot of issues. And because they didn't turn from their sin, they will face consequences. But not only that, it's not just those men that will face consequences, even their descendants will face consequences. And we didn't have enough time last week to get into this. And I won't take too much time now. But we can say, based upon this passage and other passages in the Bible, that when we persist as fathers, as mothers, when maybe also uncles and aunts, when we are even friends, when we persist in sin, we're going to impact others in a harmful way. Persistence in sin is deadly. Not just for the ones sinning, But for those that are around them, there are consequences. That sin can impact and influence others, unless that pattern is broken by repentance and faith. Think about King David. David committed adultery, and a cover-up committed murder. Murdered not just Uriah, but several men were murdered. Was his son, our sons, were they moral? Were there any problems in David's family? There are massive problems in King David's family. David was a man after God's own heart. David repented, he confessed, he got right with God. But still, the actions that he did had significant consequences. Absalom. Tragic. Horrendous. And yet David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon had thousands of wives. Was that biblical? That was wrong. Going back to Genesis 2, 24, and the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Ecclesiastes, however, shows that Solomon, eventually in his life, repented and got right with God and began to fear God. 
But what I'm seeing that this passage shows is that when we persist in sin and we don't repent over it, definitely there will be consequences. Definitely, Hebrews 12, 5, God's going to pursue us, but even our descendants, even our, our children can learn wrongful patterns. And in their life, if they don't repent and have faith and trust in Jesus, then our sin can impact them in deadly, deadly ways. And so we as men and women, as fathers and mothers, want to be very careful that we are afraid, not simply for our sin and the consequences they will have upon us, but the consequences of our kids. One thing I'm scared about for my own kids is I'm not scared that they're going to get neurofibromatosis. That doesn't scare me. What scares me is they're going to be influenced by my sin. It's not that they have a family genetic disease that they might get that scares me, but rather I don't want them to be impacted by my remaining sin. That's even worse. And so this is a map key that as we read this section, it is showing us to press forward. We admit that we're sinners. We admit that even as believers, we have remaining sin. We have to keep conscious. Yes, the Lord forgives. In him there is redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. But there are consequences. What we so is what we reap. And so we want to be careful. Now, there is a third map key. Those two were from last week. We'll try to do two more this morning. There is a third map key that's here. And the third map key is this. Hope in the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. Hope in the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. And we see this really in verses 8 through 12. It's very clear that it's here. Starting in verse 8, with Judah, your brothers shall praise you. By the way, this this passage is a prophetic announcement from Jacob, but also it, it's been written as poetry. There's a lot of poetry that is here, Hebrewic poetry. Judah, in verse 8, Judah and praise is basically the same word. Judah means praise you. There's a play on words. And in verse 9 and verse 10 and 11, verse 12, it's pointing to Christ. And so this section is pointing to, the, with Judah, your family shall praise you, your brothers shall praise you. And ultimately, it's pointing to the Messiah. You will be praised, you will be exalted. That is, your your descendant, the seed, will be praised and will be exalted. We can see it this way. In context of all that we're saying, your your expectation of real peace and satisfaction can ultimately come from one source, and that's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. Why? Because this section, these verses, teach us that he has complete and total victory. There's only one that has had and will have complete and total victory over all evil, and that's Jesus Christ. Whether it's physical evil or evil or spiritual evil, there's only one that has complete conquest. Conquest. That, that's Jesus, the Lord. So to go forward then, we have to look up to him to be our source of salvation and salvation in all of its different dimensions. 
so we can ask ourselves, what do we really look forward to the most? Or what are we looking to and what are we looking for the most? Is it for the Messiah? Is it for for Christ? Is that the true north of our life? If there are these map keys and this section is about pressing forward, the Israelites were to go into the promised land. That's what had been promised to them. What's promised to us is not the nation Israel, not those contours, but Christ and salvation, eternal life, eternal glory, reigning with Christ forever and ever and ever in glorified bodies forever. That's what we are trusting Christ for and pressing into the Christian life for. And so the ultimate hope that we have is that Jesus Christ is going to win. That's what directs our lives. Jesus Christ has, is, and will win. That's what keeps me going in the Christian life. Now, let me show you this in a text. Let's consider this from the text. And There's much that is here. So let's consider this. Basically, let me remind you, Genesis 3.15 stated a long time ago, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you in the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this has been called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, Proto-First-Evangelium gospel, the first gospel was promised that God would send a redeemer, a a seed that would defeat the serpent from Eve. And then this was narrowed from Adam and Eve to who? To Noah. And then it was narrowed from Noah to Abraham. And now it's being narrowed from Abraham to even one of his, is it grandson or great-grandson, to to Judah. And then pretty soon that will be narrowed to David, right? And that's why I believe verse 8 is saying, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Then it talks about his success. And it talks about power and authority. So this promise is being expanded from Genesis 3.15 all the way into Genesis 49. And it's causing Israel, it's pleading with Israel to keep looking for that promise of God for a redeemer for one that can deliver. That's even why in verse 18 that we'll look at later, it says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Now, in this text, there's so much about about victory and success. You can look at verse 8. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's a sign of victory. Conquest. It can be that somebody has already been subjugated and somebody is already being submitted or somebody is being submitted. It's the idea of domination and it's speaking of Judah. And so remember that Israel is receiving this. Is Judah dominating anybody? They're walking around in the wilderness for 40 years. So they're being given an encouraging message that there will be a dominance of the tribe of Judah through Judah that will conquer the enemies of Israel. And even it says, your father's son shall bow down to you. Not only 
was an idea that Joseph would have preeminence, but even Judah would have a type of preeminence that even the rest of the tribes of Israel would understand. This is probably why you have in Matthew 1 and in Luke 1, through Joseph and I think through Mary, that it details the, the lineage of Christ. It goes back to Abraham, but through Judah. Even it says in verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. What's a whelp? A whelp is basically an offspring, a son. You can see that in the next part of verse 9. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares rouse him? When a lion is stalking its prey, what can stop that lion? The lion is regal, majestic, powerful, noble, but dominates and crushes its opponent. This is the picture in verse 9. And in fact, even today, but especially back during the ancient days, the lion is a symbol of what? Weakness? Now, there are many flags, many crests in Europe, all over the world, and China, many, many places. And they use the figure of a lion as what? Something that's a wimp, that, that, that's weak? No, it's regal. It's powerful. It can crush the enemy. Nothing can stop it. And that's the picture here. Who dares rouse a lion? Even in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is what? A mouse? Aslan is a? A lion. And this is why, because of the picture that it presents, the main, majestic, regal idea of kingship, the, the king of the animal world, the mighty lion. And so that's being used to picture the Messiah, to picture Christ. Further, when you look at verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter, the idea of a symbol of a person that has authority and, and that's ruling. No other ruler's staff from between his feet. They have discovered relics, especially in the Middle East, and uh, past the Middle East, rather, in that Mesopotamian area of different Persian kings sitting on the throne. And on that throne, they had a staff. And that staff, when they were sitting on the throne, it would be between their legs, and they'd be holding the staff like this as they sat down. So different scholars believe that that could be the picture. It's the ruler, a king, is sitting down, and sitting down with him, he has this staff that indicates authority. We can say it this way. Jesus has, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the, the Son of David, the Lion of God, has the right and the might. No one has more right or more might than the Lord Jesus Christ. He has both. That's what this passage is saying. And again, it's saying to Israel that we're to go into a foreign land to believe God's promises, to fight the enemy, to believe God, and to take the land, to take steps of faith into a dark land, to live for God. And so they're being told that it's the Messiah who is their Messiah. And it goes further. And so they need to press forward in faith. And it goes further, you can see, until Shiloh comes. Have you ever heard about Shiloh? 
does anybody know about Shiloh? Maybe it's a southern thing. But when I was growing up, there was Shiloh Baptist Church. Have you ever seen a Shiloh Baptist Church? No? <laughs> In the south, I expect Georgia and Florida, central to northern Florida and other parts of the south and the Carolinas, I saw many Shiloh Baptist Church. I don't think I've seen out west a Shiloh Baptist Church. Get with the program. Silo Baptist Church. I had no idea what it meant. Shiloh. Shiloh. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a city named Shiloh. Does your Bible say Shiloh there? Some Bibles may not say, may not, may not say Shiloh. It may say something else, but what does this mean until Shiloh comes? Have you named your son Shiloh? Thomas, can I change your name to Shiloh? No? What does that mean, Shiloh? That's it. Everybody just say the word. You have to say it loud. Just say the word Shiloh. You spoke Hebrew. So this is a transliteration, basically. So it's not a translation from Hebrew into a different language. How you say Shiloh in Hebrew is you say Shiloh. So that's basically what it is. So they did a transliteration here and not a translation. And there's been many different ideas of what it could mean. But the interpretation, the translation of the word Shiloh means tribute. The basic Hebrew word means tribute. So if you look at this verse then, when it says 10a, that this future son of Judah, he's going to be, he's going to have majesty, he's going to have might, and he's going to have right, he's going to have conquering power. And this is going to happen until or, or when Shiloh comes, until tribute comes. It involves some sort of tribute that's going to be given. Now, some have expanded this into a paraphrase, and you might see this in some Bibles. The, I think the, the Christian Holman Standard Bible, maybe the Revised Standard Version as well. And it says something like this, to whom it all belongs, or him to whom it belongs, or until he who comes whose right it is. <laughs> it's the idea, tribute is what? That you are giving honor, maybe allegiance, maybe you're giving some sort of monetary value to someone. Think of Psalm chapter 2, and perhaps Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, it is based upon this. Psalm 2. I think is a good picture of this tribute. Psalm 2, verse 11. Worship the Lord of reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. The New American Standard says do homage to the Son, but the Hebrew is basically kiss the Son. That he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There is a type of loyalty and honor and allegiance that is given in Psalm 2, 11 and 12. And that is also the idea that's here until Shiloh comes, until there is this tribute, until there is this pledge, until there is this devotion and allegiance to that one that is the son of David, the son of God. And it says right after that, Verse 10, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not just 
the tribes of Israel, but to him shall be the obedience of the different people groups, I believe is the idea, and the world. So when this future ruler comes from Judah, and there will be this allegiance and devotion, this this tribute that's given unto him, like Psalm 2, 11 and 12, to him shall all be the obedience of the peoples. So he will come, he will do his work of might and right, and that people then will seek to obey him. They will bow down to him. They would do Psalm 2, 11 and 12. They, they will kiss the son and take refuge in him in order to follow him. Now we've seen this, I believe, of course, in scripture. We saw this with the incarnation of the Messiah and then his perfect life that was 100% righteous without sin, his perfect substitutionary atonement on the cross for the sin of all who would believe. And then he rose again, and now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father on high. And there's only one other thing left for him to do. And that is to what? To return. And I think all of that basically is summed up by this this tribute until Shiloh comes. He's going to be the ruler. He's the ruler of all these people. And eventually everybody is going to bow to this king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it says in verse 1, toward the end, I may tell you what we befall you in the days to come. The, the, the days to come is this slight nod in the head to, to eschatology, to what's going to happen in the future. And I believe you have that here with the end of verse 10, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. I think you see this, of course, even in the New Testament, for example, Ephesians 1, verse 10, with a view to ministration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Everything in the universe is going to be wrapped up underneath the Lord Jesus Christ to the obedience of the peoples. You have this also, I believe, in Philippians at least partly, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even Romans 1.5 says that Paul went out as apostle for the obedience of faith. That is, the Messiah and the gospel calls people to repent and trust Jesus Christ, to give their allegiance and their trust to him, the Son of God, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And that is a type of gospel obedience. We're not saved by the work that we do, but by the work that Christ does. But there is this repentful, faithful submission to Jesus. And so Romans 10, 9, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then if we keep looking at this passage in Genesis 49, note the the beautiful pictures in verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine 
in his donkey colt to the choice vine. The, the, the picture here is that of abundance. And in that Middle Eastern culture, you wouldn't normally tie your donkey to your favorite choice vine. Because if you did, what might happen? It might be trampled, it might be eaten, it would be gone. And so the idea, the picture is, there's so much abundance of grapes. It is so extravagant and prosperous. It, I can tie ten donkey here, donkeys. It doesn't matter, because you have so much. That's the picture here. And that's why it says in verse 11, He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. The blood of grapes is squashed grapes. So very red and smushed. What do you use for laundry detergent? I have no idea. What you, a tide? I'm not sure. Whatever. Clean all? The picture here is you're, you're so prosperous. The, the Messiah has brought such prosperity that the choice, the, the very, like a hundred, I have no idea. <laughs> Let's say that. A $500 bottle of wine. You're like, this is nothing. And you're going to use that to wash your clothes. That's what's going on in verse 11. That's the picture. Now, verse 12 says, his eyes are dull from wine. Now, probably not the best translation there. And you might have a, a one or some kind of reference in your margin. And it says, darker than. And his teeth white from milk. It's not that the Messiah would get drunk with wine. But it's that this person here that ties his donkey to the vine is very healthy, very prosperous, and that all the blessings are making a benefit to his life. Very physical pictures and description of prosperity that the Messiah will bring. That's the first level of this. Now also when we look at this, there are some nuances here that we have to see, right? So Christ came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus, right, changed the water into wine. I'm not saying that's what this passage means, but there are allusions that we see in, in the New Testament of these involving the Messiah. And even here, when it talks about his robes his and the blood of grapes, you might remember in the book of Revelation, it talks about that furious wine press of the wrath of God. So these pictures are pictures that the Israel, and even thousands of years later, those in the Middle East would have understood. Perhaps we're not understanding these as much now, but it is the picture of great prosperity and wealth. There is even an idea, as I said, that sometimes the wine press could be used for wrath of which the Messiah had. Right? In Psalm 2. But however we want to view this, verses 8 through 11 is saying that from Judah there will be a ruler and this ruler will bring great abundance of prosperity to those that trust him, to those that, that follow him. And he will have the might and he will have the right. And this is, of course, Jesus Christ, the Lion of God. So just in, in a capsule, trying to, cap, uh, to capsulize this. 
The text is saying from Judah will come the Messiah to whom eventually the, the peoples, the whole world, and the New Testament says this, will eventually, in some way, bow their knee to Jesus Christ. And so then Israel is receiving this about Judah, and they are called also to be pressing forward as they are understanding that God is going to give them an all-capable, powerful, majestic ruler that can conquer all their enemies. Now then, just briefly, having tried to expand on that, we consider the theology of the text, that is, theology, meaning doctrine applied to our lives. What is it that we do with this? This idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the conquering hero. I would suggest this. Your banner over you is not, my banner over me is not, I am right. Husbands, it's not, I am right. Or, I'm the Lord of the house. Nor is it for the wives, or even for the kids. Our banner is not, I am right, I'm to be exalted, everybody look at me, it's about me. That's not our banner. Our banner is what? It's about Jesus. It's about this ruler. It's about this Messiah. It's about the Lord. I want my kids to fear Christ, not me. You know, Psalm, not Psalm, Ephesians 5.21, before it goes into the wife and the husbands, and I've taught this, preached on this at different marriage ceremonies, in Ephesians 5.21, it says, fearing Christ. Often we don't talk about that. Do we fear Jesus? Certainly we should love Jesus. Even Ephesians says at the end of the book, it talks about that we should love Jesus. If not, they'll... We could be cursed. We need to have this incorruptible love for Jesus. But yet there's, there's also this, this fear of God in Christ that, that we should have. I can remember one time a man said to me, I want my kids to fear me. I want my children to fear me. Maybe he's taking respect a little bit too far. I would have rather heard him say, I want my kids to fear Christ, to fear Jesus, to exalt him, to be humble before him. So then, to press forward in the Christian life, to be able to inherit and take all these promises that are ours in God, we have to resist looking everywhere else and instead look toward Jesus. Look toward Christ. To press forward in the Christian life, as Scripture says simply, and it's even sublimely, look at Jesus. That's not basic. That's actually very deep. <laughs> that your whole gaze is occupied in your life by exalting Christ. So all that you do, all that you say, all that you do is Am I exalting Christ by my thoughts, by my words, by my actions? That's what drives my life. It's not other people. It's not other churches. It's not other heroes. It's Jesus Christ. And that's why you have Philippians 3. talks about 
glorifying in Christ, seeking to know Christ, considering all things as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Colossians, set your mind on the things above where Christ is, is at. Hebrews, focusing your mind on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, looking at him. As soon as we stop looking at Christ, we're pressing forward. There can even be some good things that we look at too much. And then we get distracted, like Hebrews 12 says. And then we stop pressing forward because we're not having this all-consuming gaze on Jesus Christ, our sufficient Lord. So this is the third map key. Because of who Jesus is, we look at him. We're driven by him and all that we do. And God is calling Israel in the passage to be driven to realize that there is an all-powerful ruler that's going to come that will deliver them, and they need to get ready for that. They need to press into that truth and go into their promise, their promised land, knowing that God's already promised that they will have victory in him. And so do we. What then do we do, uh, knowing these things, that God holds our life in his hands, he has our life mapped out? Second, that may we be aware that we can't persist in sin because there could be consequences. Let's repent and leave those sins behind. The third map key is that there's an ultimate ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will have ultimate victory over all sin, death, hell, and enemies. What then do we do? And this will be more brief. There's a fourth map key, and that's this. If you want one word, pray. Pray. If you want a sentence, keep pressing forward by crying out, rescue them. There, there was a song, probably now decades ago. We were talking about how fast time flies before church. I think now it was decades ago, but there used to be a song, Rescue Me, Rescue Me. I've shared that before. And that that's a, a good prayer. There's also a, another prayer for us to press forward that we can also pray, that we should pray, and that is, Lord, rescue them! Rescue them, Lord! And you see this in verse 18. Now, we'll come back and look at the other verses next week. But in verse 18, he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. So here's Jacob. And Jacob is acting as a, as a prophet here, giving prophetic declarations. And he's talked about several of his children. He's talked about the consequences that Reuben and Simeon and Levi are going to face. He's talked about Judah and the blessings that will come through Judah. He's talked about Zebulon and Iskar and Dan and some of the nuances for them. And he's going to talk about other children. But then right in the middle, he stops and says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. And this sentence is, verse 18, and this sentence is, is almost in the middle of the passage. He's been talking about blessings, and he's been talking about anti-blessings. And what is his response? He prays. For your salvation, I wait, O Lord. So we pray. Again, this is simple but sublime. We pray. And if you or I are having a hard time pressing on in a Christian life, most likely it's because you're not looking at Jesus 
and or you're not praying like you should. There can be many issues of complexity involved in your life, but the answers are not necessarily complex. Are you looking at Jesus as much as you can throughout the whole day, and are you pursuing God in prayer? That will be of great advantage and help. And here's Jacob again. He's right in the middle of receiving this prophetic utterance and making declarations. And it's almost like he's being overwhelmed. And he's, you can see even how the numerical standard uses the, the capital O, which connotes emotion. Oh, God, rescue, help, deliver, give salvation, Lord. This kind of prayer includes persevering in prayer. Look at verse 18, Genesis 49, 18. For your salvation, I wait. And Isaiah and Psalms and other places, prayer is described as waiting on God. So this type of pressing forward into and for the promises of God include persevering prayer. Patient prayer. Prayer can be hard work, and it often is hard work. There are such things, of course, as instant prayers. You remember Nehemiah 2, where Nehemiah prays basically under his breath. God help me, because he's before the king, and he's going to challenge the king on something. And if he does, he could be killed. And so in an instant, he prays. There are prayers that we can make like that, and we should make like that. But there's also this persevering prayer where we pray for something, and... The answer doesn't come. Sorry. Guess who right now is texting me? Mom. <laughs> she just says, I'm, I'm praying for your preaching and that God's word would go out boldly. <laughs> I should turn over the phone so I, I don't see it. This waiting on God. Remember what Christ said. There is this knock. There is this seeking. There is this, this asking. There is this hard work of laboring on our knees. One of the first sermons I ever preached at Pilgrim was Ephesians 6.18. It says, pray at all times for all the saints, persevering in prayer. That's a paraphrase, not, not a quote. Be praying at all the time, persevering in prayers for all the saints. There is this type of, of labor, of striving in prayers. And in context, I say it's he's waiting. He says, I wait. But in context, it's waiting for God to bring salvation. Remember, Jacob is praying this. And as he writes this, they're not wandering around. They've already been delivered from Canaan into the land of Egypt and Goshen, right? So they've already been saved. So this is a prophetic type of utterance where he's looking at what's going to befall his children and his children's children. And God's already promised that there's going to be an almighty ruler that's going to basically conquer all the peoples. And so then how does Jacob respond to that? Oh, Lord, God, I wait for the salvation. Bring this salvation. But when he says, wait, it's this idea of... Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep praying and, and I'm, I'm asking for it and I'm gonna keep laboring for this. Maybe you're reminded that Jacob wrestled with the Lord even earlier. So maybe he's learned from that, that there are times when God wants to teach us to have this faith. Faith perseveres. 
Pressing forward in Christ requires persevering prayer. Also, talking about prayer, it includes intercession. And we've, we've already talked about that. But there is this intercession for your salvation. I wait, O Lord, is for his people. And as I said, Ephesians 6.18 even talks about that. But what I wanted to point out is, if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign, that makes you more of an intercessory prayer. It, it, that is, if you truly believe God is sovereign, then you're going to pray more, not pray less. If you have a right understanding of God's sovereignty, that doesn't mean you're silent and, and you resign to this mysterious plan of God. But because you know God's absolutely sovereign, because God has mapped out the future, you pray. God, through Jacob, just said, here's what's going to happen to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and, and their descendants. My reaction might be, okay, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. Jacob's reaction is, yes, Lord, um, I'm going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to pray. We don't know all the intricacies of God's word, but we of God's plan, of that hidden plan of God. But we do know that God is merciful and loving and kind and good and forgiving. And Jacob knows that because God's had mercy on him and Jacob was a scoundrel. And so Jacob is interceding. Even for those people that God has said, they're going to have a hard time. And their descendants are going to have a hard time. Watch Jacob's response. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to pray harder. Jacob wasn't a fatalist. Since God is sovereign and has a plan, what do we do? We pray more. Not less. We pray more. If you want to press forward then that involves this attitude of, because God is sovereign, I'm going to pray even more. I can remember that one time I had shared with my father the gospel, and he said, I don't want that Christ. That broke my heart. What should I have done? I said, okay. No, pray more. <laughs> Maybe you have children, loved ones that aren't saved or that are persisting in sin. What do we do? Pray less? Give up? Never give up. Never give in. And until we see Christ, we keep praying. Until that person dies. Even now, I, I want to pray for my dad, but he's passed away. I pray that he would have received and repented. <laughs> but, I, but we need to keep praying, keep persevering in intercessory prayer. And that's pressing forward. There's also a third element, and this is this Christ dynamic. That's even here. Here I would say a Yahweh dynamic, and the New Testament would be a Christ dynamic. But look at verse 18. For your salvation, the Hebrew word for salvation is basically Yeshua. Here it's Yeshuat. But it's Yeshua. Yeshua is really the name of who in the New Testament? Jesus. Translations are good, but sometimes we, we can miss out a little bit. And so he's saying, for your salvation, which is here, Yeshua, which is Yahweh saves. Oh, Yahweh. He's saying, Yahweh, bring your salvation. And in the New Testament, we could say that this would be a type of a very Christ-centered prayer. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. And we see this with Jesus when he says, pray in my name. But we also have this more of a theological statement in Ephesians chapter 3. 
where he says in whom, uh, verse 12, and whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That is that when Jacob is praying, he's not saying they're mysterious architect of the universe. What? Have, I, I've heard prayers like that. No, here he's saying God has revealed himself. His name is Yahweh. And I'm praying to this God, the God that is everywhere, that has all power, that knows all things and has promised to give a redeemer. I'm praying to that God. Now, in the New Testament, that God has been incarnated. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to have a Christ dynamic in our prayers, what I mean is that when we go to the Father to pray, to intercede for our loved ones or even for our enemies, right? We need to pray for our enemies. Jesus, we go to the Father through Jesus, not through our righteousness, not through our accomplishments, not through our achievements, but through his. And again, this is primarily what it means to pray in his name. And again, I'm not saying you can't end your prayer with in the name of Jesus. I'm not saying don't do that. What I am saying, rather, is that when we pray, our our heart and our language needs to be coded in the righteousness of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, the promises of God. That is a Christ-dynamic, God-centered prayer. So we're not like the Pharisee, remember? The Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee might stand and separate himself from less godly people and say, Lord, I, I thank you that I haven't done this and 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 I haven't done this. The publican, rather, the, the tax collector said, Lord, atone for me the sinner. One is a biblical prayer, the other is not. One has this Christ dynamic that I need a Messiah. Even to approach God in prayer, Ephesians 3.12, I do that in him through Christ. There is also a fourth element that will end here by, by prayer, this fourth element of prayer, and we'll, we'll stop here. When it says salvation, it's physical and spiritual. And context, right? Verse 10 and 11, especially 11, and, and the whole chapter is talking about at least physical, but also spiritual. That would be all involved in here with this term, salvation, your salvation, I wait, O Lord. And I think that we can say this type of prayer involves that we pray about all things. It includes physical and spiritual rescue. Philippians 4, 6, banks us for nothing, but in everything we ask of God and pray about. Everything. First Peter 5, 7, cast our concerns on Christ. We bring everything to God. Everything. Anything that concerns you, you can come to our God and say, God, I have this concern. I, I pray about this. Lord, please answer this prayer. Thank you, Lord. Everything we can bring to God. So then let me end with these words. Are you having a hard time pressing forward into Christ, becoming more like Jesus, and trusting and believing God's promises? Could it be that you're not looking at Christ, number one? 
And or number two, could it be your prayer life has diminished? It is very difficult, if not impossible, to go forward in Christ if you're not praying. You, you can't be more mature if you're praying less and less and less and less and less and less. I, I don't mean necessarily by hours, but by commitment and by intensity. That is, if your prayer life is diminishing, then your power to live and to want to live for God is going to correspondingly what? Diminish. Again, it's very simple. But it's also sublime. And I think that is, it's significant. Oftentimes, I think we want a special technique, our, our steps, how to be really godly. How to be really godly? Read the word, look at Jesus, and pray. Pray for yourself, certainly, but labor and intercede for others. And we see this here in verse 18. A diminished prayer life will produce a diminished Christian life. Pressing hard after God will include pressing hard after God in prayer. It was Ian Bounds, centuries ago, I guess now, said, no prayer, no power. N-O, N-O. Then he said, no prayer, no power. K-N-O-W. Right? So if you don't pray, you're not going to see power. If you do pray, you're going to see power in your Christian life. So we could, in a similar way, say, no prayer, N-O, no prayer, no pressing forward in the Christian life. And then we can say, if you know prayer, K-N-O-W, if you know prayer, then you're going to know pressing forward in the Christian life. Those are two things, I think, this morning that God wants us to consider, to think about, and to do in our own Christian life. Look at Jesus. Can I look at Jesus more faithfully? Number one. Number two, can I have a better prayer life? Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would convict us and equip us to be able to look at you more faithfully, to be consumed by your beauty, and that secondly, we would be committed and make actual steps to pray more faithfully, to pray more intensely, Lord, to feel the the urgency of looking at you, gazing at you, and praying, Father, both more often and with more zeal. We give you the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.